Okay, this is the podcast recording for week five. Uh, this week is all about Marx. Um, we did Hegel and Marx last week. This week we're doing all Marx and we're doing uh, two sections from, from Capital and then a part of the Grundriss. And I should say there's been a change. I updated the syllabus and updated Brightspace. If you print out the syllabus initially, we were going to read chapter 10 on the working day uh, as well as chapter 7 from Capital. I've switched that to chapter one and chapter seven. Um, chapter 10 is very long and chapter one, I think will help us do what I want to do today, which is uh, make the transition from Marx's early writing, which was focused on alienation. Uh, last week we talked primarily about alienation, which came from Marx's writings in 1844. At this point, some uh, 22 years have passed, uh, 23 years have passed, and uh, we get the publication of Capital Volume 1. So, and Marx has spent most of the time, to the extent that he could, in these years, uh, dedicating himself to what he called the critique of political economy. Um, although he only published one volume of Capital in his lifetime, 1967. Uh, two more were published posthumously, kind of put together in some sense by Engels. Um, and then we're also going to talk a little bit about the Grundriss, which is a, some notebooks that Marx was keeping in the 1850s as he was working on capital. So, as I said, uh, I want to get from alienation to exploitation. These are two different understandings and criticism of capital, um, although Marx doesn't necessarily use the word exploitation. I think it's a good word. Uh, it's often been used to describe what he's talking about, but it's not being used in the way that we might normally use the word. But before we get there, we have to get through a discussion of value. Um, and before we get to the discussion of value, we have to talk about commodities. And as Marx says in the opening section of Capital One, when he talks about commodities, he says, you know, the world in which capitalism is predominant confronts us as an immense accumulation of commodities. And that's a little bit like what I was talking about last week in the sense that look around you, chances are almost everything you see, the computer you're listening to this on, the pen you're taking notes with, the pad of paper, etc., the uh, caffeinated beverage you're drinking, all these things came in the form of commodities. They were made uh, to be sold on the market. Now, Marx wants to, in some sense, pose a particular kind of riddle or get us to think about something that's, uh, that we don't really think about in a commodity-based society, and that is um, how do commodities have value, or more importantly, how do different and disparate commodities have the same or similar values? And in order to do that, Marx makes a distinction between use value and exchange value. And to some extent, although we don't need to get into this too much, um, uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about Aristotle and Aristotle's discussion of the proper and improper use of, say, a shoe, right? The proper use is wearing it and the improper use is trading it. Marx's distinction of exchange value and use value, in some sense, relates back to that, that distinction. Um, only 
it's not with the same moralizing language of prop, proper and improper use. Um, and in fact, Marx goes on to say when he means use value, that, that the object has a use value, it satisfies some need. You know, pens are for writing with, caffeinated beverages are for drinking, um, shirts are for wearing, and so on. Um, it's very important, and Marx is quite clear about this, that he doesn't really mean need in some restricted, you know, needs versus desires uh, terminology that we might be familiar with in thinking about, you know, consumer society and capitalism, you know, when our parents, you know, first told us, you know, that we didn't need blank toy, we just wanted it, we learned this distinction between needs versus desires. As far as Marx is concerned, as he says, the need uh, can come from the stomach or can come from fancy. The need can um, can uh, doesn't have anything to do with necessities. Things we want, things we desire also fulfill kind of needs. But the important thing about the use value is that it, it does something and does something specifically. And this is where the problem comes from because uh, use values do different things, right? So say, for example, you put an, on an old coat and you find 20 bucks in the pocket. And you think about what you could do with those 20 bucks. Not a lot, as much as you could. You know, you could order a pizza, uh, a really big, nice one, and maybe even get some beer if you're overage. Um, or you could, you know, maybe not, you could finish filling up your tank of gas, or you could buy a shirt. The important thing is these are very disparate and different things. Pizza, um, gas, a shirt. Um, they're not at all interchangeable at the level of use, right? They're, they're way more different than the proverbial apples and oranges. Um, there's nothing for which a, a t-shirt could be used that three quarters of a tank of gas, say, you know, nine gallons or so of gasoline, uh, could equally be utilized for. So they're, they're, they're absolutely disparate when it comes to use. But the fact that they all um, have cost $20 um, it suggests they have something in common. And what is this common something? And Marx argues this common something is labor. So like Locke and like Smith, to some extent, Marx thinks labor creates value. Um, although Marx is quick to point out, things can have use value without having an exchange value, and, and labor creates the exchange value. So every commodity has two sides to it. A use value is what specifically it does, and the exchange value is to some extent what it costs. Now, there's a long argument here about the difference between prices and values in the sense that sometimes things are sold above, and be, uh, above or below their value. Um, we're not going to get into that. You have to go way, way deeper into, into capital to get there. Right now, we're just going to use the word value and price is more or less synonymous. So the value of a commodity is determined by the amount of labor power that goes into it. Now, this brings us to our, our second distinction. When Marx writes, this is at the end of section one of chapter one of Capital, some people might think that if the value of a commodity is determined by the quantity of labor spent in it, the more idle and unskilled the labor, the more valuable would his commodity be because the more time 
would be required in its production. The labor, however, that forms a substance of value is homogeneous human labor expenditure of one uniform labor power. So that brings us to this, this second section. Um, just as the commodity has two sides to it, it has its use value and its exchange value. It has what it's utilized for and how much it, it is exchanged for. The labor that is embodied in it has is both its concrete labor, and by concrete labor, we mean different labors do different things, right? Tailoring makes a jacket, um, uh, uh, um, farming makes, you know, a, a pumpkin, um, different labors produce different commodities, different uses. Um, and then the other side of it is this thing called abs abstract labor. Now, abstract labor sounds like an oxymoron. How can labor be abstract? And what Marx means by this, and this is in some sense a tricky and one of the trickier concepts and, and that all of capital is trying to explain, is that abstract labor is the socially necessary labor uh, to produce a thing. So going back to the, the passage I just read at the end of section one, right, if if I say, for example, I don't know how to knit, if I decided to knit a sweater and finally made one uh, and tried to sell it and tried to sell it for, you know, all the time I spent on it, I would have a sweater that no one would want because I would be charging hundreds of bucks for something people could get at Walmart for uh, much cheaper. Um, that's to some extent what Marx means by the socially necessary labor time, that this, this abstract labor, he refers to it as a process that goes on behind people's backs. And he mentions uh, in this section that there is a, that when, uh, when there's an invention of a power loom in one part of the world, it changes the the rate of labor in another part of the world. So that's to some extent what Marx means by socially abstract labor in the sense that, by, or by abstract labor, that there is a standard norm of productivity. We don't think about this norm of productivity. It, as Marx says, it goes on behind our backs that determines in some sense the value of a commodity and how it determines it is if that if you cannot produce your commodities at that norm of productivity if it takes you too long and too much labor you will be pushed out of the market um now the last part of of uh chapter one from capital is a part that i'm not going to go too much into um it's a very tricky part and in other classes, um, you might talk a lot about this, and that has to do with what Marx calls commodity fetishism. Now, commodity fetishism um, is a strange term, and it's probably going to throw us off in, in, in certain ways. Um, Marx doesn't mean sort of being like overly attached to commodities in the sense we might talk of someone as being, you know, too materialistic and so on. We don't, Marx doesn't mean fetishism in that 
kind of post-Freudian kind of desire way. He means it in an earlier kind of proto-anthropological way in the sense that um, partly what Marx is getting at, and this is the one thing I do want to talk about about commodity fetishism, is that as Marx says uh, in, in the section on commodity fetishism that a commodity is therefore a mysterious thing because in it the social character of men's labor appears to them as an objective character stamped upon the product of that labor because the relation of producers to the sum total of their own labor is pre presented to them as a social relation existing not between themselves but between the products of their labor. This is the reason why the products labor become commodities, social things whose qualities are at the same time perceptible and imperceptible by the senses. And then he goes on to compare this, this weird distortion to the way that light from an object uh, appears to be a quality of the object. And I think that's the, the operative analogy here. What, what Marx is getting at is that commodity fetishism means that when we look at a commodity, we see value as one of its characteristics. Um, in the sense that, you know, and I think this, as Marx says, this becomes especially true when a commodity has uh, had the same value for a long period of time, even though commodity values do fluctuate. Um, you know, if you think about the fact that, I don't know, for a while, it seemed like it's probably gone up uh, to some extent. It seemed like a um, a small cup of coffee um, would cost you somewhere around $2. Um, and so when I look at that cup of coffee, I perceive not only its qualities um, in terms of its color, its smell, its caffeine, I also perceive like $2 as kind of being such the standard price that it seems like a reality of the thing itself. Um, uh, and of course, that, that $2 is fundamentally unlike all the other qualities um, because it's not a physical quality of the thing. It's a product of the social relations that produce the thing. I mean, it would change drastically if those social relations were to change. If there was to say, for example, to be massive labor strikes throughout Central and South America uh, on coffee growing plantations, um, it might radically change. Um, but to the extent that we see value as not a product of social relations, but an aspect of commodities themselves, we fetishize them. And as Marx says, I mean, he uses two different languages here, this like kind of religious, you know, this idea that the, the commodity is a mysterious thing, but he also uses the language of, as I said, science, right? The optic nerve thing. When I look at things around me, I don't think of, I'm looking at this plant in front of me right now, I think of it as being green. Um, but the green is really just the way in which light is bouncing off of this plant 
and affecting my eye. Under different lighting conditions, it would look different. Um, but I perceive the color to not be an effect of the relation between light and the optic nerve. I perceive it as a quality of the thing itself. And so part of the consequence of this is that commodity fetishism cannot be simply dispensed with. You can't just sort of critically think your way out of it, which is why Marx ends this section by talking about different social relations that where people have a different relationship to their commodities. He talks about Robinson Crusoe, excuse me, on his desert island. And Robinson Crusoe knows exactly how much labor goes into everything uh, because of the fact that he did it. Um, he also talks about uh, uh, sort of medieval society or a feudal society where people are definitely exploited, but they're not exploited um, in terms um, that are concealed from them. Um, and one of the things that, um, uh, that Marx will, and this is something that comes up again and again, is that, uh, you know, and this goes into a, a whole theory about feudalism, but as Marx says um, uh, in that section, he says, here the particular natural form of labor and not a society itself based on production of commodities. Um, sorry, uh, compulsory labor is just as probably measured by time as commodity producing labor, but every serf knows that what he expends in the service of his Lord is a definite quantity of his own personal labor power. And what Marx is referring to there is the fact that, you know, in feudalism, um, and he talked about this again in, in, in chapter seven, there was there was a definite time or a definite amount of days you owed your Lord working on his estate or his land. And you knew very well when you were working for your Lord and when you were working for yourself because you have your own little plot of land and so on. Um, and then lastly, Marx mentions, and this is the closest he gets to saying really something about kind of communism and, 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 and capital, especially what we read, that um, a society of free individuals where uh, people would collectively choose and decide um, how much labor they were to allocate uh, to whatever projects or products they needed to produce. Um, and this is what we do not have, right? We, we, and to some extent, you know, Marx talks about a commodity fetish as a kind of a hieroglyphic. And part of what he's getting at is that um, when we go out into the world, we go shopping and we see different commodities and their values. What we are really seeing are a whole series of different social relations, um, relations about the different laboring conditions in different parts of the world and in different industries. But we don't, think of it as that or even perceive it as that well we perceive it as as just uh coffee prices have gone up or coffee prices have gone down or whatever the case may be we perceive those social relations as the value of things okay so now i want to turn our attention to chapter um seven uh where marx first talks about the idea of of a kind of labor process considered absolutely independent of any historical or social conditions, labor in general. 
And he does say some interesting and kind of quasi-anthropological things about what labor is like, but he has that curious and often cited sentence about the difference between um, the, the, the best of bees and the worst of architects, that the difference between what humans produce and what bees and spiders and beavers and so on produces, there's a, a, a conscious element to that production. Um, and then he also goes on to say that uh, uh, one of the other qualities of labor is that we transform ourselves. This is why he has that weird line about the Bible, because the Bible, you know, man is made in God's image. We constantly tr transform ourselves when we work on our, when we work, that we are both working on ourselves and working on the world. And every labor process has, as he says, three components, an activity, something we're doing, uh, an object, something we're doing that on, and an instrument, something we're doing that with. Now, as we'll get you know, further into the class, we'll talk about the way in which sometimes that instrument, um, in the case of, say, for example, uh, waiting on tables, the instrument might be, you know, we seem to have very many tools. I mean, you carry plates and so on, but the instrument can also be your own face in the sense that you use your face as um, a, uh, a way of looking friendly and happy and, and so on and so forth. And that instrument um, transforms the object. And here the object you're transforming is not, you know, some raw material you're turning into a finished good, but the object is the well-being of the patrons or their perceived feeling of, of well-being. So this, this model, I just want to suggest this model is very, very flexible. But what Marx is interested in is the difference between what labor looks like, you know, throughout human history, which is this conscious effort through an activity to transform an object by means of an instrument, and what labor looks like under capitalism. And the first thing that Marx says, and this is on page 293, is that the first defining characteristic of capitalism, um, capitalist production versus all other forms of production, is that the capitalist, the person who owns the means of production, is not necessarily concerned with the specific use values they're producing. Ordinarily, if someone made boots, they'd be interested in boots. A capitalist buys a boot factory not because they're interested in boots, but because they believe that the boot market is looking good. Um, they're interested in exchange value, not use value. Now, as Marx says on, on page 295, you can't separate exchange value from use value. As much as capitalists and, and books of, of economics want to talk about widgets indifferent to what is being produced, you have to produce something specific. As he says, value is independent of the particular use value by which it is born, but a use value of some kind has to act as its bearer. So that's one of the contradictions of, or one of the things that capitalism changes, is that capitalist production is aimed not towards the production of specific things, it is aimed toward the production of exchange value. It is aimed towards the production of uh, uh, producing really more money and is relatively indifferent to what is being produced. And one good illustration of this is you can read, like if you read some of the existence of some of these massive conglomerates, they might be um, uh, 
you know, they might include owning some restaurants here. They might include owning some clothing stores here. You know, they might own a variety of different things. And that shows the indifference of capital to use values, but it can't be entirely indifferent. Um, but the real point I want to get to is on page 300. And Mark says um, that, and this is the, this is exploitation as Marx understands it. And exploitation stems from a fundamental difference in terms of labor. Um, he says, but the past labor embodied in the labor power and the living labor it can perform and the daily cost of maintaining labor power and its daily expenditure and work are two totally different things. The former determines the exchange value of labor power, the latter its use value. So what is Marx saying there? Well, partly Marx is saying, you know, one of the questions that Marx himself brings up is if labor power determines the value of every commodities, then what does labor power itself cost? And Marx's answer to this is that labor power costs whatever it takes to keep the worker coming back. Now, that can, that's a very broad understanding, and, and it can include multiple things, right? It has to be enough to keep workers alive or alive to some extent. Maybe they can't afford rent and they're still living in their parents, but they're at least able to, to, to be alive. Um, and it has to include enough to keep them from going someplace else, um, which is why this value, the value of labor power uh, uh, fluctuates um, or its cost fluctuates with the labor market goes up. Um, uh, goes down when unemployment is high, goes up when unemployment is low because people are, are, are able or, or unable to find other jobs and so on and so forth. So labor power um, is a commodity like any other commodity, right? The people who, who have it, the workers, have their capacity to sell, they uh, capacity to work they bring to the market are looking to get the most for, for it. And the people who buy it, the capitalists, are looking to find labor power as cheap as possible. But unlike every other commodity, there's a fundamental difference between, as Marx says, its exchange value and its use value. And what Marx means by that is once you show up and once you punch in, once your labor power is purchased, the productivity of that labor power is not determined by how much it costs to get you to show up. It's determined by a whole series of other factors Say, for example, uh, how, how hard the capitalists can get you to work, how well the work is organized in terms of division of labor, how much technology is employed, and so on and so forth. So there's a, a fundamental difference between how much labor power costs, how much its exchange value is, which is is how much it costs to keep workers coming back to work and how much labor power produces. And that difference is fundamental to capitalism. As Marx goes on throughout the rest of the section to point out that without that difference, there would be no point in investing in uh, owning the means of production, in buying a factory or any other such thing. If the only thing you're going to do, if you're going to spend like, say, $100 relatively low on how much you you were going to you know produce stuff and you only got back a hundred dollars you'd be a poor capitalist 
there has to be a difference between how much capital is invested and how much a return. And Marx thinks that difference comes from this difference between how much labor power costs and how much labor power produces. That difference is what I'm calling exploitation. Um, and that, it, that difference is integral to capitalism because without it, um, there would be no point in there being a capitalist enterprise no capitalist is going to is going to um, invest in in a factory or whatever uh, without the possibility of a return. And we'll see it in in a couple months, really, when we read some stuff on current capitalist conditions around automation and so forth. Um, this issue comes up again um, that if you can't get a good return on your investment, a capitalist will be better off just keeping that money in the bank or whatever. Um, so the difference between how much labor produces and how much labor costs is integral to capitalism. It is exploitation. Now, one of the things I want to talk about, and this is probably something we should talk about in the discussion topic for this week, is what is the difference between this criticism of capitalism, where the criticism is focused on the difference between how much labor produces and how much labor costs, uh, just in this criticism and Marx's early criticism, which focused on alienation. So that's one thing we should talk about in the uh, discussion section for this week. Take a brief um, pause here, and then I'll get in talking about the, the piece on... Uh, automation and machinery. Okay, so this is part two, and here I'm talking about the, the piece that's referred to, and well, you have it as a piece called um, Capitalism, Machinery, and Automation. It's sometimes also referred to as the fragment on machines. In fact, that's what Paulo Virno referred to it in the reading for next week. Um, and it's from what is referred to, again, to use that word, the Rundriss, which is really, I mean, Rundriss in German means like the, the outline, the notebooks, uh, the German title makes it sound way more fancier, uh, is a series of notebooks that Marx was taking in, in, in around 1857 when he was working on capital. And in some of these passages in the notebooks, he gets into things that he doesn't quite get into in terms of capital. And this section on machinery and technology is one such, such section. Um, and it does seem to, to be in some type of contradiction or at least tension with things Marx uh, writes in Capital and things Marx writes elsewhere. I mean, one point of tension to talk about at the outset is that as we, as we talked about last week, uh, not last week, in, in part one of today's recording, uh, Marx describes the labor process independent of any social formation 
in other words, labor is almost a kind of an anthropological constant as involving an activity that uses an instrument to transform an object. And, and to some extent in that discussion, right, Marx mentions that, that, the, that activity is underdone by a human being who in doing so transforms the world and transforms themselves. Um, they take, they learn new skills, new abilities, their body becomes stronger or broken down, they transform themselves and so on. But there's a certain sense in which that description seems to characterize the person doing the work as kind of being uh, the person in charge of the work. Um, now, when Marx starts to talk about automation and machinery, he uses this very striking other formulation, and that is the worker becomes just the conscious organ of the machine, which suggests to some extent that, um, and he also goes on to say, the machine itself becomes the virtuoso, uh, the skilled operator, that the person becomes simply um, a part of the machine itself, um, and not necessarily the most important part, because most of the knowledge is, in some sense, embodied in the machine. I mean, to me, the perfect example of this is if you look at the history of, say, for example, cash registers, um, you know, which went from, you know, very early on, a lot of the, the knowledge of the price of things, and even maybe the knowledge of how to calculate price by weight and so on, was in the person who operated the machine, and they would do a lot of that work, um, that a great deal of this has been, you know, gradually, uh, 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 that knowledge has been um, hardwired into the machine itself to get, you know, the modern uh, uh, checkout, which scans barcodes and, and, and does weights and calculates weight per price. Um, and then on top of that, you can then get the self-checkout machine, um, which really does reduce the worker to nothing more than a conscious organ of the machine, right? Because there's usually still at least a worker working the self-checkout, you know, like in Home Depot or someplace. There's the operating, overseeing, you know, four or six or eight self-checkout things. And they really are, in some sense, the conscious organ. They're mainly there to make sure you don't steal anything. Uh, and they're also there for when the invariable uh, 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 mistakes happen, where the thing keeps telling you to put the item in the bag, and you've put the item in the bag. Um, they come by and press a couple buttons and get you out of that situation. So the that is in some one one example of the worker being reduced to a conscious organ of machine. But it does suggest that the schema that marks. Uh, in capital used to talk about labor independent of any social formation of being an activity an instrument transforming an object um is in some sense is in some sense being kind of undermined by the rise of machinery but the main point i want to talk about from this passage has to do with another uh undermining and the way in which capital kind of undermines itself, as uh, Marx writes on page 
285. Capital itself is the moving contradiction in that it presses to reduce labor time to a minimum, while it posits labor time on the other side as the sole measure and source of wealth. Hence, it diminishes labor time in a necessary form so as to increase it in the superfluous form, hence posits the superfluous and growing measure as the condition, question of life or death, for the necessary. On the one side, then it calls to life all the powers of science and of nature as a social combination of social intercourse in order to make the creation of wealth independent, relatively, of the labor time employed on it. On the one side, it wants to use labor time as a measuring rod for the giant social forces, thereby created and confine them within the limits required to maintain the already created value as value. So what is Marx saying here? I mean, basically, the, the moving contradiction of capitalism is that capitalism is constantly reducing the necessary labor time. Right, to go back to my uh, cash register example, now you only need one person to do the work of six or eight. Um, uh, so a massive reduction in the number of, of employees. Um, so or the, or the amount of work needed, but it still makes uh, labor what Marx refers to as the measuring rod. In other words, um, those people, just like going back to when we talked about Adam Smith and the fire engine, the people who are displaced by these technological innovations and improvement still live in a society um, where they need to sell their labor power in order to survive, right? You can't just go, I mean, it'd be nice if you could, let's say you've been working your entire life as a cashier in a um, supermarket and one day the boss comes to you and says the company's replacing you with a self-checkout machine um sorry you can't you know you can't work here anymore um you can't just go out into the world and say well since my job is now being done by a machine um i uh don't need to work anymore and uh, i can be fed and clothed and sheltered um, my job is still being done, right? The machine has taken over for me, um, so I don't need to work anymore. No, you, that person will have to find a job. And as we'll get into, um, you know, there has the history of capitalism is a history of massive displacements of workers from entire industries, you know, from agriculture to begin with, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, you know, something like a third of people in this country worked in agriculture to some extent, uh, and then displaced into industry, and then displaced again into services and other forms of of work. But that those displacements are really this, for Marx, or as Marx is arguing here, the basis of a real fundamental contradiction, and the contradiction is capitalism simultaneously reduces the need for labor time in the production process but requires the means uh, requires labor time or the ability to sell one's labor as a, a means for so many people in order to make a living now the other idea in here and this is going to come up again 
next week when we talk about uh, Paulo Revere. Now, the other idea in here is this idea of um, science and knowledge becoming a productive force. And it's an idea often summed up with this notion of what Marx refers to as the general intellect. As he says on the bottom of that page, page 285, nature builds no machines, no locomotives, railways, electric telegraphs, self-acting mules, etc. So, uh, you know, I think in 1857 he wrote this, those would be the most cutting edge technologies. These are products of human industry, natural material transformed into organs of human will over nature or of human participation in nature. They are organs of the human brain created by the human hand, the power of knowledge objectified. The development of fixed capital indicates to what degree general social knowledge has become a direct force of production and to what degree, hence the conditions of the process of social life itself, have come under the control of the general intellect and have been transformed in accordance with it. So it's this idea often summed up with this phrase, the general intellect, which was actually in English in the original, of the general intellect becoming the predominant productive force. Um, and by that, Marx means the way in which, right, once someone discovers, say, steam power, in Marx's time, or uh, the uh, trans uh, transmission of electrical currents and their interruption that makes possible the telegraph. Um, once those discoveries exist out there in society, um, they are kind of part of this general intellect, the general social knowledge of society, that once they are there, um, they become a primary productive force, right? This is the flip side of this idea of the worker becoming a conscious organ is the idea that the primary productive force in society is no longer labor. It is knowledge. I mean, this sounds very Silicon Valley-esque. Um, and there's a certain way in which, you know, many people have argued that's a way to make sense of what is happening, you know, because if you look at say, the top five companies right now in the U.S., um, in terms of capitalization, uh, market share, whatever, and the top five companies, say, 50 years ago, one of the most striking things you'll see is an immense reduction of the number of employees. You know, when you go from an economy where the big companies are, you know, Ford and General Motors to an economy in which the big companies are, you know, uh, Google and Apple and so forth, you have a massive reduction in uh, uh, a labor force, um, the number of people actually working for those companies. Um, and to some extent, you would, people would argue that that massive reduction is because those companies primarily use knowledge as their main productive um, uh, uh, force, to put it that way. Right? That, that to some extent, um, and it, I mean, this does raise all these questions. You know, a lot of people will talk about say, for example, you know, uh, not to get too off topic, but, you know, how Google may not employ as many people, but Google um, utilizes the fact that 
so many people use its search engines, its email, etc. Because you know one of the things you're doing when you're using a Google search engine, um, or using Gmail, or using Google Maps is you are in some sense helping improve those very services, right? And that's what that's how their uh, uh, page rank algorithm in part works is that it knows what people want by noticing what people want. Um, uh, and utilizes that um, to perfect future searches and so on the same way that it utilizes its email now even, right? It, uses, it reads email to help other people compose emails um, uh, and it uses how people drive from point A to point B to tell other people how to drive from point A to point B. So there's a, a big question about that relationship between the the general intellect as a kind of knowledge embodied in machines and the kind of general knowledge of society, which in our age constantly is filtered through all kinds of machinery in order to become part of the appeal of that machinery, right? Um, I mean, if no one used Google to search, no one would want to use Google to search because it would have no way of improving its search results. Anyway, that's, that's a little bit off topic. Um, but the point uh, being here th is that um, that one of the strange uh, things about capitalism is that it, it creates disposable time in order to convert it into surplus labor. Um, and the other thing that Marx gets into here, which is interesting, is this idea that there's a distinction between um, value and wealth. This is on page 287. And where he says, for real wealth is a developed productive power of all individuals. The measure of wealth is then not any longer in any way labor time, but rather disposable time. Labor time is the measure of value, posits wealth itself is founded on poverty, and disposable time existing in and because the antithesis of surplus labor the pausing of individual entire time is labor time and his degradation, therefore, to mere worker, subsumption under labor. Right. So the difference between value, which is dependent upon um, uh, uh, a person existing, as Marx says, as a mere laborer and wealth is wealth is really free time. Right. And part of what Marx is getting at here is to some extent capitalism doesn't really create free time. It creates unemployment. Because all the time that is liberated, and a great deal of time has been liberated from, you know, with every with a lot of technological devices, it changes how quickly um, one can do various sorts of things. You know, everything from 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 growing crops to to making cars to even writing a paper takes less labor and less time because of all these technological innovations that you know fertilize the crops that uh, mechanically uh, uh, bolt the car together, or when you're writing a paper that do spell check and formatting all for you, they all involve a reduction of time, but that reduction of time primarily does not appear to us, and this is something we're gonna get into more in the coming months or so, as free time, it primarily creates its opposite, which is either unemployment or the increasing scrambling to uh, get labor 
in a society that makes labor itself scarce. Okay, so um, I said at the beginning, the first criticism I want to talk about is um, our point for the discussion is the difference between alienation at the basis of a criticism of capitalism and exploitation is the basis. Um, and then um, I guess the next thing I would want to talk about is um, this um, notion of capital constantly undermining labor while at the same time making labor central to how wealth is measured. Right? So you can't sell your labor power, you have no access to social wealth, even though social wealth is being produced by other forces than labor, like mechanization and so on. Um, and I just, I guess for this one, I don't really have a, I don't really have a focus question. Just um, what do you think about this and how do you understand this being a contradiction? So that's what we can talk about in the discussion.